Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh Lahaz, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Dyne, the CCPF litigation director. Joanna is away. In today's episode, we'll discuss Uber's lawsuit against the City of Toronto, which has made the sudden decision to cap the number of new Uber drivers. And we will share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. But first, let's talk about a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, which seems to suggest that decision-making based on vibes is back. So when I say vibes, what I'm talking about are so-called charter values, which are kind of hard to explain, but they're basically this concept that judges reach for whenever they read the constitution and they get the feeling that something isn't quite right, like something ought to be written there and it just isn't for some reason. So, you know, maybe the framers forgot or whatever, and we'll just say that it is there and we can feel it and it's called a charter value. And the case I'm talking about is called Commission Scalaire Francophone des Territoires du Nord-Ouest versus- Nice, nice French there. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I didn't practice that at all. Um, versus the Minister of Education of the Northwest Territories. And it's a case that deals with Section 23 of the Charter, which is the Minority Language Education Guarantee. And it doesn't actually deal with whether Section 23 rights have been violated. No, no, no. Everyone agrees that the rights were not violated. What this case is about is whether the minister should have thought about Section 23 rights when she was making her decision in relation to parents who everyone agrees did not have their rights violated. So Section 23 of the Charter couldn't be more clear. It says that parents whose first language is English, who reside in provinces where English is the minority language, in other words, Quebec, and parents whose first language is French in provinces where French is the minority language, so everywhere outside of Quebec, have a right to have their children educated in that minority language, where the number of children is sufficient to warrant the outlay of of public funds. So in this case, several parents in the Northwest Territories who don't have French as a first language and themselves go to French school, in other words, people for whom the Section 23 rights don't apply, wanted to send their kids to French schools, probably just to give their kids a an edge in the job market one day. And the French school supported them attending because French schools are required only where the numbers warrant and it's hard to justify French schools in the Northwest Territories at all because the population is just so small. So the territory actually had a policy of allowing some people who aren't so-called rights holders into these French schools, but these kids did not even qualify for those, you know, special rules like, you know, having an immigrant parent who speaks French or things like that. And so the minister rejected their applications. She said she did it for budgetary reasons. And a lower court judge who happens to be none other than Justice Paul Rouleau, you'll remember him, Christine. Of course. Who could forget the, from the Public Order Emergency Commission? Exactly. Yeah. The guy who said that the Emergencies Act was justified, uh, despite um, it being pretty clearly not justified. But anyway, Justice Rollo decided that the minister's decision was not reasonable because she didn't consider the so-called charter values underlying Section 23. In other words, this minister didn't do the vibe check that she was supposed to do, um, even though these parents' rights were clearly not violated. And so Justice Rollo decided that... um, 
the decision was unreasonable because she didn't consider the the harm to the Francophone community's Section 23 rights. So the appeal court overturned Rollo, pointing out that Section 23 was not engaged because, well, under the clear text of Section 23, um, they were not rights holders. And if a right isn't engaged, then surely we can't require the minister to consider it. But Justice Suzanne Cote of the Supreme Court, joined by all of her colleagues, except for Justice Malcolm Rowe, who didn't sit for this one, actually agreed with Rollo that the minister did have to consider these so-called charter values underlying Section 23, and because she didn't, her decision was unreasonable. So at this point, Christine, you might want to try and guess what the charter values are. I'm guessing you probably can't because it's kind of hard to know in advance what charter values are supposed to mean in any given case. And in this case, Justice, Cote, Justice Cote offered some guidance and she said, you know, charter values can be identified by first determining the purpose of the right. And, you know, I would have thought the purpose of a right that says you have a right to have your children attend schools in the minority language of the province where numbers warrant is to allow children to attend schools in the minority language of the province where numbers warrant. But the Supreme Court says, no, that's not the purpose. The purpose is, quote, something more ambitious. It's not only to prevent the erosion of the official language community, but also to redress past injustice and promote development of those communities. And Justice Cote says that the charter values are, in practical terms, preservation and development of minority language communities. She explains the Section 23 is just the means of realizing the societal ideal of preservation and development, and therefore admitting the non-rights non holders, that is people who the text quite clearly says don't have a right to attend, actually upholds these charter values of preservation and development, so the minister had the duty to consider them. And I'm not sure how you get either preserving or promoting from the actual words of the text, so again, it's this just sort of judges engaging in a vibe check. And Mark Mancini, who is a UBC PhD student and an admin law guru and a friend of ours, uh, he was the former Runnymede National Director, has written a really good post about this on the Double Aspect blog, where he, he talks about some of the problems with this sort of reasoning through vibes. And he says that this is creating a two-track constitution where judges are, are allowed to feel out the true constitution that only they can sort of feel and see. Um, and he calls this the constitution of values. Well, the actual charter of rights, which is a text written down, is relegated to a mere shadow of that constitution. And so the decision is also plainly at odds with a number of pretty recent decisions that point out that judges are supposed to follow the text of the charter and only try to discern the purpose from other sources where the text isn't clear. So as Justice Stratus of the Federal Court of Appeal put in a recent case called Bolo that we've discussed on this podcast, this is the Jihadi Jack case, um, uh, Justice Stratus said the Supreme Court had been toying with this approach of using text as a mere cue, prompt, or springboard for the courts to fashion a broader underlying feel, spirit, or vibe to widen the scope of the provisions such that unwritten constitutional rights far removed from the text were discovered, but that the court had since made clear in cases like the court, the case that upheld the, the decision by Ontario Premier Doug Ford to cut the size of Toronto City Council, that this vibe-based approach was out. But 
you know, it looks like Justice Stratus may have spoken too soon because vibes are definitely back. And uh, Mancini explains the problem here. Now, even if your right hasn't been violated, you can still claim that an administrative decision maker did you wrong because they didn't consider charter values that are vague and probably much broader than the actual text. And this makes administrative law extremely unpredictable, and it's going to create all kinds of frivolous claims that will tempt judges. And this is just a big problem for the rule of law. The beauty of being ruled by the law as opposed to the rule of men is that we get to know the rules in advance and we can advocate to have those rules changed by our political leaders if we don't agree with them. Whereas this kind of decision making puts it puts the decisions back in the hands of unelected judges who get to more or less arbitrarily decide what we can and can't do based on their own political preferences or view of the world. So in case you can't tell, this whole decision is giving me very bad vibes, Christine. Have you read this decision? What do you think of it? No, I haven't read this one yet. But yeah, I have I have obvious concerns with, you know, unwritten constitutional principles, charter values. And we worked on this a little bit in the case of the city of Toronto, where the argument was made that these unwritten principles could be used to displace uh, legislation. Now, this is a, a different argument than what was made in this case, but that's kind of the the swing for the fences type of argument that we see a lot of people on the, you know, living tree side of, of the charter trying to argue the, the people who want to expand all of the things that the charter they say does and says, including expanding it beyond what it it does or says into these, these charter values types arguments. So I obviously have, I, I share the same concerns that you do, but you know, I haven't read the case yet. It, uh, it's a pretty new one. Uh, but I, I I'm super interested in what, what you've been saying. And I'm, I'm going to probably do an episode of my show, Canadian justice about this case as well. So, um, looking forward to reading it. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's move on and talk about Uber. Um, I'm so interested in this case. As you know, I was like very outraged when I when uh, Olivia Chow, the mayor of Toronto and her council sort of sprung this new new policy on us. Uh, yeah, well, I think you'll be even more outraged when you hear all the details. So I read the notice of application that Uber has filed. They filed this shortly after the um the announcement of the license cap. So what happened is Uber is suing the city of Toronto. On December 4th, they filed this notice of application of a lawsuit against Toronto because of a surprise license cap that city council passed. Now, Uber drivers are required to be licensed in Toronto under the municipal code, but before October 11th, any driver who satisfied the city's safety requirements and did a training course would be issued that license. But at that October 11th Toronto City Council meeting, council introduced and passed a surprise license cap motion, and they didn't give any advance public notice. And the cap is at roughly 54,000 Uber drivers. Now, Uber is suing the city saying that the failure to provide notice to Uber and to stakeholders violates the city's own procedures. They're using the law firm McCarthy Tetro, so bringing out the big guns for this one. And they say that all they knew was 
back in all Uber says that all they were told was that there was this December 2021 direction to city staff to report on possible bylaw updates for all vehicles for hire for the purpose of achieving environmental goals. And this was under a previous mayor, right? This this December 2021 directions to staff was uh, under Mayor John Tory. And the staff report was delivered on September 11th, 2023. And the staff report didn't mention anything about an, a license cap. Uber says that the first they ever heard about capping driver licenses was at the meeting of council itself, where one city councillor, Mike Cole, moved on his own to create this cap. Uh, but they suggest in their lawsuit that it was actually orchestrated by the mayor's office. So one councillor in response to the proposal to bring in this license cap, uh, councillor Brad Bradford, he commented that the council meeting had been, in his words, hijacked that the report from city staff was unrelated to license caps and everyone should be asking, why is this even happening at all? Another counselor asked if the industry and companies like Uber even knew if a cap was being considered and city staff said no. And that generally city staff said notice is required, but council proceeded to vote in this license cap anyway. Now, Uber later learned that Toronto's mayor, Olivia Chow, had planned to introduce this license cap months before, and that beginning in August 2023, had planned a motion uh, for an, a cap on ride-sharing licenses for things like Uber, and that the mayor's office had actually secretly written a identical motion to the one that Mike Cole uh, introduced on October 11th and had prepared a speech a week in advance to this October 11th uh, motion expressing support for the motion. So the mayor, Uber seems to be suggesting, was the one behind all of this. So they had planned this well in advance, but had avoided any public disclosure of their plan. And this is all according to the lawsuit. Now, the other grounds of the lawsuit, in addition to this lack of consultation, lack of notice, is that the mayor and council are biased and acted in bad faith against Uber. The lawsuit says that the mayor and council concealed their plans to bring the motion. They circumvented public participation. And Uber says that this is all because the council and mayor are biased against them. Uber alleges in the lawsuit that the city knew they needed to consult and they didn't consult because they just didn't want Uber's input. And they claim that the license cap is in, intended to, it's a targeted policy aimed at stopping Uber's growth specifically. And that the mayor actually coordinated with an anti-Uber group called Ride Fair TO. And in fact, they say in the lawsuit that the mayor's head of policy was a registered and active lobbyist for Ride Fair TO as of October 11th, when this motion was voted on and was not walled off from this issue. Now, in addition to all of this, so the lawsuit was filed and then we subsequently got access to a confidential briefing note from the Toronto City solicitor that was leaked and published by CTV News. And that solicitor briefing note, the lawyer's note to counsel, warns that Toronto could lose this lawsuit that was brought by Uber. And they offered, the city solicitor offered some options for backing down, 
the note says that without action by council, Uber is likely to succeed in establishing that council's decision does not satisfy the legal test that has been applied by the courts in prior cases. If so, the court will quash the bylaw. So obviously it is bad that a solicitor's opinion got leaked. That is a privileged document and things like that should not get leaked. That's bad. But it's also bad that the city proceeded to enact a bylaw where they would have known that the opinion of the city solicitor is that they're open to risk of being sued. It's the taxpayers of Toronto who need to pay for the recklessness of the mayor and council when they enact illegal laws. And look, I don't have an opinion on whether or not this lawsuit will succeed, but certainly if it's the opinion of the solicitor that it will succeed, then that's pretty big cause for concern. Now, as for the policy itself, a cap on Uber or ride sharing licenses. I mean, the fact is the city could do that. The city could impose a cap if they wanted to do that. They have that authority. Uh, but the claim here is it's the way they went about it that is the problem, that there was no advance notice and that the mayor and council are biased against Uber and are influenced by lobbyists. Now, on whether or not they should impose a, a ride share cap, that is just a policy question. Look, I don't think that they should. I like Uber. I think Uber has actually become more expensive as more government requirements have been imposed and creating a cap will obviously drive that price up further since there will be fewer drivers on the road. It's a supply and demand issue. And Uber, you know, it, it used to be really inexpensive. It was it used to be a lot cheaper than taking a taxi and now it's probably around the same price, but a lot of people still prefer Uber because I mean the cars are nicer. And the app is easy to use and it's a very convenient. And from a policy perspective, taxis probably could compete if they did a better job, if they had a better app, if the cars were nicer. But I think that there is this whiff of unfairness because taxis, they were a highly regulated industry by government and Uber came in, you know, whatever it was like 10 years ago, and they did a lot of things without being subject to the same rules as taxis were. And people paid a lot of money for their taxi licenses. They government requirements drive the prices of taxis up. So I understand why the taxi industry would be mad if they paid a lot of money for their license and suddenly Uber started undercutting them and the government didn't care well, if that was me, I would probably be mad too. So I do understand their perspective. These are all policy questions, though. The issue of the lawsuit is whether or not the city violated its own procedures when suddenly doing this surprise, what Uber calls ambush motion to cap, to cap the Uber licenses. So what's happening now? Well, city council is debating this again since they have this solicitor opinion that says they're going to lose the lawsuit. They're now seem to be rethinking what they're going to do. And they're actually debating it right now as we're recording this podcast. There was supposed to be a vote yesterday, December 13th, but for timing reasons, the debate ended up getting extended to today. City council is notoriously inefficient, although I guess they were pretty efficient in getting this surprise motion done. Well, so for by the time you're listening to this, we may have more information. We may have uh, 
information about whether or not the city is going to make some changes as a result of this lawsuit. But it's certainly a really interesting uh, interesting issue, interesting case, interesting policies. And it's why I always say it's the things at the municipal level that actually can impact your life the most. I mean, if Uber is no longer available, that will have a really big and negative impact on my life. I don't know about yours, Josh, but I sure take Uber a lot. Uh, anything you want to say about this lawsuit and about uh, your perspective on the policy uh, or on the way this motion was brought? Yeah, so this makes me really angry, actually. Um, I don't I haven't seen these, the um, notice of application and I don't know enough to opine on the legal matters here. But I do know from a policy perspective that this is it's pretty crazy. Like I watched the city council meeting where this actually the surprise decision came up. And remember, nobody actually campaigned on this. The councillors, um, who are, by the way, mostly drawn from pretty far on the left, um, they just, you know, ambushed us with this. And they claim that we need to ban Uber for a few different reasons, all of which are BS. You know, this claim that this is going to help the environment by reducing congestion doesn't actually make sense because Uber allows a lot of people to rely mainly on, you know, walking and taking transit because they can supplement it with Uber when they actually need to get somewhere, you know, on time or somewhere that's far that transit doesn't get to. So I used to be. I mean, the city could help congestion by not installing bike lanes that aren't used in yeah. major on major roads. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean that's added so much congestion to my neighborhood. The new bla- uh, bike lanes in the neighborhood. Don't get me started on bike lanes. <laughs> like, oh my god, there's there's so many places where we're down to like one road for transit, and then you have like the occasional bike pass. And in winter, nobody bikes, um, and it's just a winter city. But yeah, even it's it's just crazy. Like, but you know, I used to be one of these people that relied on transit for most of my rides because I had Uber and. I ended up getting a car during the pandemic and now I don't take transit at all. So I think congestion might be worse if you cut the number of of Uber drivers. And they also claim that they're doing this because Uber drivers don't make a living wage and they need to protect them. And they use this figure that Uber drivers only make $8 an hour uh, to back up this claim that Uber is somehow abusive of, of employees. But this is a number that's made up, like literally just made up by the taxi industry lobby group ride fair to and it's just false like they the they make more than twenty dollars an hour less expenses but plus tips and ride fair just calculated that their expenses are somehow you know twelve dollars an hour or whatever a lot of uber drivers drive to supplement their other their income right a lot of uber drivers that i know that i've that i've driven with have other jobs yeah they do and they but not only that, like even if you drive full time, you have to drive a lot of hours, but you still make a lot more than minimum wage when you factor in in the tips. And so that number is just made up. And so what's it really about? Like it just seems to be payback to the taxi lobby. Like this is just what yet another lobby group. And for whatever reason, council has decided that they that they want to side with them at this point. And I just think it it it's you know, it drives up costs to go anywhere in the city and that's going to harm all the businesses that are struggling post COVID and it's going to harm tourism because tourists come here and they will be less likely to be able to afford to go out and spend money in businesses in, in downtown businesses. And so 
I just think this is like a stupid policy that's based on sort of backroom lobbying. And I think it's really disappointing that the media has mostly sort of given counsel a, a free pass on this one. And the last thing I'll say is I just saw today on Twitter or X, I guess it's called, um, that Uber is now telling passengers when they get into Ubers that, quote, Mayor Chow has arbitrarily capped the number of rideshare drivers li driver licenses in Toronto. Capping licenses creates longer wait times and higher prices for consumers. And that's absolutely correct. So even if they don't win their lawsuit, I'm glad to see that they're they're fighting back in this way. They're, they're feisty. <laughs> yeah, good for them, honestly. Um, the media is not doing their job here, so it's good to see Uber uh, standing up for themselves. Let's go to break. And when we come back, Christine, we will get your freedom update. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. Okay, so my freedom update this week is about all the winning we've been doing at the Canadian Constitution Foundation this month. So... Josh did an update in our last episode about the math is racist case, which we're thrilled with that victory. But the same week, we actually had another victory. This was in a legal challenge to Canada's first past the post voting system. It was a lawsuit brought by brought by an uh, an advocacy group called Fair Voting BC. So the case is called Fair Voting BC and the Attorney General and what this the, what this organization was doing was they were challenging our first past the post system which is the constituency based voting system that we have in Canada it's the system we inherited from England and you vote for a local member and you know your vote if you don't vote for the winning candidate you know you you didn't you vote for you voted for the loser and in order to win the election you don't need to get a majority you just need to get more votes than anybody else. So because of this, some groups and some parties in particular don't like the system, especially if they have broadly dispersed support across the country as opposed to regionally concentrated support. So think of the Green Party and the NDP and their kind of diffuse support across Canada compared to the Bloc Québécois who have very concentrated regional support and end up with uh, what some might say is a disproportionate number of seats because of the electoral system that we have based on the popular vote. So the Fair Voting BC group challenged this system. They said that it violates Section 3 and 15 of the Canadian Charter of Rights of Freedoms. And Section 3 protects voting rights. They said that it violates voting rights because your vote is not effective. Uh, so you've, if you voted for the losing candidate, it means your vote didn't count. Your vote was wasted. And they said it violates Section 15, the guarantee to be free from discrimination, to equal treatment under the law. They said that it violates that principle because 
they say that the first past the post system ends up electing more white men than women and racial minorities. So the system is therefore discriminatory. Now, we intervened in the case to argue that the Constitution Act 1867 makes multiple references throughout it to a constituency-based system. It was the system in place at Confederation, and it was the system in place when the Charter was created in the 80s. And there's nothing that suddenly happened that made the system we've had this whole time unconstitutional. And the court ended up agreeing with that. They they dismissed this legal challenge. And the judge, Justice Morgan, actually cited our argument. He wrote, counsel for the intervener, the Canadian Constitution Foundation, as to this, that since these electoral Electoral principles are entrenched in the Constitution Act 1867 and have never been repealed. They cannot be challenged under the Charter or the Constitution Act 1982. As the Supreme Court has put it on a number of occasions, one part of the Constitution cannot abrogate another part of the Constitution. So we're thrilled with this result, although I am doubtful that this battle is over. This organization, Fair Vote BC, has put a lot of time and resources and money and research into doing this advocacy and i assume they're going to try to appeal this this decision um that is that is it we're thrilled with this decision so let's move now to our bad legal takes of the week josh what was your bad legal take this week my bad legal take this week goes to the ottawa airport which has taken down some extremely innocuous advertising that supposedly offended some people in particular a local Algonquin leader. And the sign was from the Manitoba Métis Federation, and it simply says, Manitoba Métis Federation, National Government of the Red River Métis. And Christine, the story is actually insane the more I think about it. Basically, this local Algonquin chief claimed that this sign was offensive because it, quote, had the potential to create confusion regarding the territory's ownership. And I think he's the one creating confusion uh, personally because the territories he's talking about are Ottawa and the Ottawa region. And well, it's true that that's like unceded Algonquin land because there's no treaty in that part of Ontario. If it's owned by anyone, I, I would argue it's owned by the Crown. But uh, back to the Métis. So there are lots of benefits to claiming Métis status in Canada and various groups purport to represent Métis people, to be like the true representatives of the Métis. And they do that because there's a lot of federal funding at stake. And the Manitoba Métis Federation, who, by the way, have one of the better claims to representing people of all the groups, just wanted to, you know, inform people passing through the Ottawa airport. I'm going to assume they're thinking of politicians, that they're the true representatives of the of the Métis. And so it's honestly hard to see why anybody would be offended by this sign. And the Métis seems to think the Algonquins just wanted to have that advertising space that the Métis bought instead. And so where this becomes like a truly bad legal take is Ottawa Airport's policy that allowed the, the airport to take this down, which prohibits, quote, content that is political, offensive or discriminatory. And so this is a bad legal take because... Uh, because airports can't prohibit content that's merely political. And they they should know that because there's really clear Supreme Court jurisprudence on this that you learn in like first year of law school. 
uh, from a case called Greater Vancouver Transit Authority versus the Canadian Federation of Students. And so in that case, uh, the Supreme Court considered the Transit Authority's policy of banning like political advertisements. And the court really, you know, chastised the Transit Authority for this policy that banned political ads. They said this wasn't rationally connected to the Transit Authority's goal of providing a safe and welcoming environment. And they said that banning all political content, regardless of whether it did somehow create an unsafe environment, was not minimally impairing of the charter right to free expression in any event. And in the court's words, a blanket exclusion of highly valued forms of expression in a public location that serve an import- as an important place for public discourse are not minimally impairing of the freedom of expression. So the Manitoba Métis Federation says they plan to sue the airport. And if they do, I think they're going to have a pretty good case because it seems really obvious here that free expression rights of this Métis Federation were violated. So that's my bad legal take. Christine, what's yours? So my bad legal take is from someone who's actually a friend of ours, Ari Goldkind. Sorry, Ari. So I have him on my show all the time, and it's because he's great. He has really funny takes about all kinds of different issues. Uh, And I will preface what I'm saying about this particular post he did on X and why I think it's bad by saying I do I do kind of get part of what he's saying. I do understand why he's saying it, but I still think his answer to it is wrong. So here's the background. There was a recent poll done by Ledger. And it showed how totally uninformed Canadians are about the charter. And the headline of the news story about the poll is people are confused. Survey says Canadians need education on charter rights. And from the article, you can see that people just don't know a whole lot about the charter. And one of the quotes from the president of the Association of Canadian Studies who commissioned this poll said, they feel they know they bet- they feel they know it better than they actually do. And it gave a couple of examples. So first, there was a yes or no question that echoes Canada's charter's introductory statement, which says Canada is founded on principles that recognize the supremacy of God and rule of law. And 38% of respondents said they agreed compared to 38% who said they did not and a quarter who said that they just don't know. And that is how our charter begins. And then there were some more questions like, In Canada, do we have the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? And 88% of respondents said yes, compared to only 9% who said no. And there is no reference in our charter to the pursuit of happiness. That is an American, that is American language. Instead, we have section seven of the charter, which protects the right to life, liberty, and security of person. So, you know, I'm not surprised that people don't know the text of the charter. I deal with this all the time. And it's one of the reasons why we at the CCF created a Constitutional Law 101 course, which you can sign up for free at the ccf.ca slash learn. So let's get to why Ari had this bad legal take. So he retweeted the article with the headline, we need education on charter rights. And he said, actually, no, we need a charter of responsibilities, not rights. The Canadian people have started to sense how the misuse and misinterpretation of the charter has forever damaged, if not ruined, this country. So 
It's the first part of the tweet that I really take issue with. I just really hate it when people say responsibilities, not rights. Like, dude, this is not Spider-Man. <laughs> we have rights that protect us from the government doing things to us. Responsibilities are ours and we decide to have them or, or not. And these are based on values that we are taught from our parents, our families, our religious institutions, or from our community. They're not obligations imposed on us from the government. And, you know, if Justin Trudeau or Doug Ford or Olivia Chow want to lecture me about what my responsibilities are, you know, they can save their breath because I just don't want them telling me what I owe them. So in my opinion, this responsibilities, charter of responsibilities, not rights, is just a terrible legal take. Now, I think Ari is saying this to be provocative because that's kind of what he does a lot of the time. And I actually, the second, and I think it was done as a segue for his bigger point, which is in his second part of his tweet, which is where he says, people have begun to sense how the misuse and misinterpretation of the charter have forever ruined Canada. And I hear this from people on Twitter a lot who are very dissatisfied with the charter. And I do understand the argument. We have had some appallingly bad decisions on the basis of the charter, like the discovering of new, new positive rights. For example, you know, the right to have the state help you kill yourself or sell sex or inject yourself with poison or a lower court decision that we were, Josh talked about last week. And I mentioned in this episode about math is racist on the basis of the charter. Um, I get I, the people who tried to use the charter to say our electoral system is is unconstitutional. Like, I get why people are disappointed with the charter, but the problem isn't with our constitution, it's with the way it's being interpreted wrongly by the courts. And it's this notion that the constitution is a living tree capable of growth and evolution. And people always forget the second part of that statement from a, a famous a Supreme Court case, the person's case, where the second part of that is within its natural limits. And then the natural limits of our constitution are the is the text of the constitution. It's not like the the charter is some empty vessel that we fill with whatever policy the courts happen to think is fashionable at the moment. And the lack of rigor and discipline in how the text of our constitution and the charter in particular is interpreted is the problem, not the text of the constitution itself. So sorry, Ari, I love you, but I don't agree. No, no I don't want Justin Trudeau telling me what my responsibilities are. And I think that it's, it's the courts that are the problem, not the constitution. That's it for me. <laughs> Why don't you finish this off, Josh? Yeah, that's it for the show. So as usual, we hope you will rate us, review and subscribe. And just a reminder that we are a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations. So if you can afford to donate, please do. Now is the best time of year to donate because from giving Tuesday in November to the end of the calendar year, a group of generous donors will be matching all donations up to $100,000 and we're not um, anywhere near meeting that goal yet. So we need a few more donations there. Um, and I think that's it. So thanks for listening.